Good morning, everybody. Great joy and privilege to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. Thank you, Alan and the band, for leading us in uh, worship. Uh, it's always good to come into the Lord's presence and uh, to know that He is with us. Isn't that great? The great God who made the universe is with us. Whoa! I don't know if I dare say anything else, having made that statement. Um, I did uh, wonder this morning, uh, as I'm uh, sort of standing in for Paolo, whether I should preach with a Portuguese accent. Um, you wouldn't understand a word, so I'm going back to Norfolk. Is that okay? We're uh, in this passage of Scripture this morning, and uh, in many ways what I want to share is in two parts this morning, and of course they are linked. And the first part is, is really to do with that first passage that Bev uh, kindly read for us, which is a well-known story, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. I guess most of us who've come up through Sunday school and certainly through... We've heard sermons on this, well, probably more than, than we can count. But then the second half is what I believe is the intention of why the Holy Spirit has placed that story where it is in John's Gospel and then leads into this amazing statement that Jesus makes in uh, verse 35. I felt it would be good, I mean, I know most of you know this, but sometimes even for myself, I find I, I have to remind myself of some basic uh, truths, if you like, or facts concerning the Scriptures. You will, I'm sure, all know that the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written in chronological format. They basically take the journey of Jesus from uh, when he was born, or just before he was born, through to the resurrection. And it is in a chronological way that they are portrayed. And they tell us more about what Jesus did. They are full of facts and stories and miracles and parables and many things like that. Now, all of you, I'm sure, will know that John's Gospel is not one of the synoptic Gospels. It's a different Gospel. And uh, the way in which the Holy Spirit has crafted this, and I give all the glory to the Holy Spirit, is it's much more thematic. It takes bits out of Jesus' ministry and places them in a way that the truths that John feels that we need to hear by the Spirit come out very, very clearly. And so it's very much thematic in that way. And therefore we can say, and I'm sure you would fully agree with me, it's no accident that in John chapter 6 we start with the feeding of 5,000, which is all about bread, and we end up at the end of the uh, chapter 6 hearing that actually Jesus is the bread of life. It's there in that way because there is a theme that the, uh, the writer, the Holy Spirit, is wanting us to grasp at this particular occasion. And uh, so I'm going to take it through in that sort of way this morning. I'm not going to cover everything about the feeding of the 5,000. I'm sure you, you could preach a sermon yourself concerning that. But the thing that God put on my heart was this. Number one, and they are obviously very connected, is this. I believe that God will often give us opportunities for our faith to grow. And even you being here today, and me being here today, and myself in preparation, and preaching to myself as well as to you, I'm saying, Lord, I want my faith to grow. I want something to change in me. I want to walk out of this building at the end of this service different to how I came in, because I've been in the presence of Almighty God. And by His Spirit, 
he has spoken to me. And I'm in for heart surgery in that sense. It's amazing how God uses circumstances in our lives. Now, I don't want to offend anybody. I'm talking as much to myself, I can assure you, as anybody who is here this morning. And that's this. I've got a pretty hard heart. I also have a pretty stubborn will. I also have my own agenda that I like to walk along, and I ain't too happy when somebody says, I don't want that agenda to take place. You may be similar, or you may be actually far further down the road than I am, as far as that is concerned. But what I discover in Scripture, and actually what I've discovered certainly in the years that I've spent in ministry and dealing with people, is this. Sometimes the growth of our faith occurs during difficult circumstances, which God doesn't bring, but which he uses. And I really do believe, and I've had a number of conversations, interesting enough, in, the, in this year with different people of all ages and different backgrounds who have told me of circumstances that they're in. And the question that I would want them to hear and the question that I believe as Christians we are very reluctant to ask is this. God, what are you teaching me through this circumstance? How can I be different in you at the end of whatever it is that I am in? Here's some examples. And I'm not going to, you know, I mean, I understand people have different views on these things. Sometimes the growth of faith occurs during a sickness. God lays us aside. And in that laying aside, sometimes we have to go nearer, closer to God. I reckon the family of Jairus, the girl who died and Jesus raised from the dead, were somewhat different after that miracle than they were at the beginning. I love the story, and reflected on it much recently, uh, in Luke chapter 13, of the widow who'd been bent over and infirmed for 18 years. And she goes into the synagogue, and the indication is, from what I can understand of the background of it, is it was her regular choice to go in the synagogue, bent over as she was. But that day, who should be there? Jesus. And he looks at her. And he touched her. And the Bible says quite clearly, she was straightened and she went out praising God. I reckon her life was totally different after that, don't you? Now, I don't know anything more about her spiritual life or where she was on the journey, but I purely make it as a statement. It might not apply to you, but I think it's worth considering. If you are in a difficult place physically, Within that context, you may not have wanted it. You may, it may be an accident. It may be something that's come upon you. You didn't welcome it. You certainly didn't pray for it. But let me say this on the authority of Scripture. God can use it. That something more of Jesus may be crafted in you. And something more of faith might grow in your life. Sometimes our faith grows when we witness a miracle. We suddenly find out because of a miracle that happens that God is real. And it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I find this in my own life. It is amazing how we can move through our daily lives 
you know, we can be full of faith and faith talk when we're here in church on a Sunday morning. We move out into the week and how we sometimes forget that God is out there with us Monday through Saturday and Sunday as well. And that he is still as much the God of miracles when we're out there as when we talk about him in church. And sometimes we need a miracle to remind us of God. The illustration that came to me, you all know it, most of you anyway will know this. The miracle that took place that turned this country to a country of prayer in the Second World War was when a small group of intercessors in Wales prayed concerning the troops on the the beaches of Dunkirk. And the most exceptional weather took place that had never happened before that allowed the ships to get in, but not the enemy aircraft to fly over and bomb them. And thousands were rescued. It was a miracle. And yet sometimes we forget to even look for the miracle, let alone praise for it. Sometimes our faith grows when we feel we are down to the end of the line. The widow in, uh, in, in 1 Kings and uh, chapter 17 who, who got to the last bit of flour and the last bit of oil and uh, she said, well, we're going to have this meal, son, and then we'll just die. And then who turns up on the scene? Oh, isn't it an annoying when God turns up on the scene and changes our plans? He turns up through Elijah the prophet. Few instructions, gather all the pots that you can, go and borrow them from the neighbors, do what you can, and you know, and what happens? There's enough oil, there's enough bread, and they survive. At the end of the line, sometimes, we get to the end before we turn to God. Sometimes our faith grows because of an act of nature, just something that purely just seems to happen took place when God used Moses to part the Red Sea. You know the story. And I believe that all these things are evidence to us that along the journey, and I'm saying this, dear friends, looking at a mirror, as it were, of myself, all along the journey, God's heart and desire for you and for me is that our faith would grow. We would feed on him and therefore live 100% for him. So in this event that takes place, the feeding of the 5,000, well-known story, it's the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. The other Gospels in their account of us tell us different things about the circumstances which is sometimes helpful to remind ourselves. One of the things I love that isn't actually there so much in John's Gospel is the fact that uh, we're told that Jesus looked at the crowd and had compassion upon them. He, he's a key for you and me. One of the interesting things, and if you want a word study to do, do a word study through the New Testament of the word compassion. And you will find on many, many occasions that either by the word compassion or by using the word that Jesus looked and loved, he was motivated into action. The word compassion in the Greek means this, to look at a circumstance so long that your heart is turned and you have to produce an action. Oh, I think that's a challenge for us today. 
in our busy and frenetic lives, whether we be at work, even in church life, do we look at something long enough to allow it to affect our hearts, even to allow tears to come to our faces where we are motivated into action to do something about it? That's why Jesus did the miracle. He was moved by compassion. I'll just say something about that in a moment or two as I move on. I love the fact that John tells us a fact that the rest of the uh, Gospels don't tell us. And I've often pondered upon this. Why is this verse, verse 4 in John chapter 6? Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Why did the Holy Spirit prompt John to put that in the Gospel? As I pondered upon it, you may agree or disagree with me, is this. Because the Passover was the time of God's great deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. And what does God want to do for you? What does he want to do for me? He wants to deliver me from my old life and take me fully into the promised land. Is that why it was there? One of the interesting things, if you read the account of the Passover in, in, in the book of Exodus, it says this, that when they were to make the meal, which they did, the lamb and all the other bits and pieces that went with it, they were to eat it in haste. And most commentators would say the reason that they're going to do that, to, to eat it in haste, it's there in Exodus, is to be ready for the next thing that God's going to do. Whoa! Are you ready for that? Are you on the edge of your seat? Are you on the edge of the bed when you wake up in the morning? What's God going to do today? How's this miracle-working God going to work in my life today? Lord, I'm available to you. Put me to something or put me to nothing. But Lord, I'm ready and I'm waiting and my eyes are alert for you. My goodness, I wasn't even going to say much about that verse, but it's so exciting, isn't it? I find it exciting anyway. Maybe I'm a bit of an oddball. But the other thing about the Exodus is this, and this is very important too. Not only were they to eat the meal in haste because of God doing something, but then he said, I want you to do it every year to remember how great I am. And you know as far as I do that the youngest child in the family at a Passover meal in a Jewish household at a certain point in the meal will look at the dad or the, the patriarchal figure in the family still happens today and say, why are we having this meal, dad? And dad will tell them how God delivered them from Egypt. I wish I'd have done that more with my children. Sure, we used to have family devotions when they were young. But I wish I had remembered to share more with them of the delivering, mighty, miraculous power of God. I move on. The first part of what I'm saying here, you who know me know that my introductions are always longer than the rest. The first thing is this. Under whose way are you living? Who controls, who indicates, who allows you, or what happens within you that is there when you are making decisions in your life. So the first point is this, whose way is it? And I see four alternatives in this uh, story, and I'm just going to briefly say something about them. Number one, there's Philip's way. 
What did Philip say in verse 7? Philip said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that everyone should have a meal or, or even a little of a meal. What does Philip's way? Is to look at the obstacles to feeling of the people. Now, I say to myself, do I sometimes put obstacles in the way of what God wants to do? Do I allow my reasoning to come in and say, well, that's impossible? In fact, I can tell you this because I... I, I some people tell me I wear my heart on my sleeve too much. I'm not exactly sure what that means is this. But Sandra was telling me something this week, weren't you, dear? She can, you ask her afterwards, and immediately she said this to me, which was something to do with faith. I immediately said, well, it couldn't happen. Like, I was the Philip. And yet I'd say, I've seen so many miracles of God over the years, and in that moment, I saw more obstacles which would hold back the move of God than a reason to believe that God was there. And of course we know that the context of this is because it tells us in verse 6 that Jesus already knew what he was going to do, but he allowed, the, he, he put the question um, uh, concerning the hunger of the, uh, the crowds as a test. God tests us, doesn't tempt us, he tests us that our faith may grow. And how we respond will very often determine where our faith goes. Philip brought up the cost. He was trying to say in some, I would say, well, we'd really be better to send them home because we've got no way here that we can feed them. The, the disciples saw a problem. But when there is a problem, there is always the opportunity for God to meet that problem and to let go of the obstacle that you see there. Sometimes I found in my own life and in my own journey of life, sometimes it's, uh, you know, I'll blame the devil for it or say the enemy is on my case. That's why there's an obstacle. No, it can be on occasions. We do need discernment. But I think more often than I would like to admit, it's a test. And God is saying, where is your faith? You see, We've, we glibly, don't we? I do it as well. We glibly use scriptures. But then in our lives and in our believing and in our thinking, we deny the truth of it. We know, Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. That's what it says. So you're in a test. You're in a difficult place. How are you going to meet this need? What are you going to do? What's the decision that you need to make? And all you can see is the reasons why not to do the thing that actually God will want you to do. And we forget that when we work it his way, there is truth and growth that comes out of it. Are you a Philip? I've already told you I was a Philip this week which I need to repent of and apologize to my wife for. Sorry, dear. I might get some lunch now. Okay. Remember, these problems are really just an opportunity for God to reveal himself at a deeper way in your life. Number two, there's Andrew's way. He sees the possibility. You know, here is a lamb boy with some loaves and with some fishes. And he says, well, you know, we've got them here, five barley loaves and two small fishes. 
But what are they among so many? Again, conservative estimate, they say 5,000 men, the women weren't counted. Well, we won't go into that today. But, I mean, there could have been 10,000-plus people who were saying, we're hungry. What are you going to do? And I believe that what the thing that Jesus wants us to do in these sort of circumstances, which was what Andrew didn't understand, he wants us to pay attention to the details because small things are important to God. And the small actions in your life, the small word that somebody says to you, that thing that looked so irrelevant and couldn't possibly help you in the situation might be the very thing that God will use to bring glory to his name. It could work out in all sorts of different circumstances. Andrew saw the possibility, but he didn't know how it could happen. Well, there's five loaves and two fishes, but 10,000 people? How is that going to happen? But he did know that he had to turn to Christ. He knew that within the context of that possibility, Jesus was the answer. And how many times in my life, and maybe yours, I've seen the small thing, but not given it to God and say, God, will you use it? Now, I think one of the things that Andrew knew, as I pondered upon this, was he wanted people to hear the words of Jesus. And the only way that that would happen would be if somehow or other they could feed them. And again, going back to that word compassion, as you and I look on a world which is in such a chaotic state, as we deal with people in situations where it seems that people don't give a second thought to God and certainly are not particularly interested in finding out more. And I ask my own heart, as I would suggest you ask your heart, how important is it for you that others hear about the love of God in Jesus? Andrew noticed a young boy who was willing, willing possibly to give what he had, five loaves, two fishes, for 10,000 plus people. I was uh, sent by one of my other colleagues in World Outreach uh, uh, this study which I found really sobering. And uh, I don't say it, you know, I'm, I'm saying this to myself, you know, you can take it how, how you want. There's a recent study that was done 95% of all Christians have never won a soul to Christ. 80% of all Christians do not consistently witness for Christ. Less than 2% are actively involved in evangelism. 71% do not give toward any financing of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, if there's any accuracy in them, and I have no idea that it was sent to me as a study that had been done. The question is always, and what about me? Where am I in that journey? Dear friends, don't overlook people. Don't overlook the possibilities where God can be glorified and your faith can be strengthened. You may only feel that you've got five loaves and two fishes. You've got little to offer but you may have that very small thing that will turn somebody's life around. And what are we doing with it?
The third thing is the young boy's way. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it, really? He gave his all. Verse 11 says that Jesus took the loaves and the fishes. We have to assume that the boy was cooperative with this. He may have been nervous. He may have been hesitant. He may have been fearful. He may have thought, well, five loaves and two fishes, what's that going to do for 10,000-odd people? But he put his inhibitions aside. This was his moment of truth. Do I help? Or do I eat my lunch myself? For him, there was no going back. All in or back away was his choice. It was up to him to offer the lunch or not. When you trust God with your talents, your abilities, whatever it is, or everything that you have, and give it to him, he will take your offering and multiply it. He will use what you give him, and it will be used to bless so many people. I wonder what it was like when that boy went back to his home that night and said to his mum and dad, you'd never believe what happened to that lunch that you packed for me, mum. You'd never believe it. This man in a white robe got hold of it, and every time he was working up, and, every, and all these baskets were over, but it was only my five loaves and two fishes. I gave what I had. I had no inhibitions. Giving it to him was the best thing I could do. Giving your time, giving your home, giving your family, giving your wealth, giving your talents, all, everything, is your moment of truth. And the boy said, yes, Lord, it's for you. When I was thinking about that, I remembered myself, reminded myself of that occasion when Jesus was sitting outside the temple and all the rich people were coming and putting great bits of money in there, but it was out of their abundance, uh, Jesus said, that they gave. And then the widow comes along with her two mites. And what does Jesus say? She's given more than the rich people because she gave all that she had. I think one question for us this morning is this. Are we going to go all in or are we going to back away? And the fourth attitude that we see within this story is this. It's the Jesus way. The Jesus way is where the power is released. The motivation is his compassion to see a world that is fed. Because in, in Mark's gospel, it tells us when he looked at the crowd, not only was he moved with compassion, then he made this statement. And, and I say this and ask you maybe, would you dare with me to pray this prayer when you move out into the world after this service and throughout this week? Lord, these people are like sheep without a shepherd. What is he saying? He's saying these people have got no anchor. They've got no purpose in life. They don't know why they're here. They're making money, they're building homes, they're building castles in the, in the sky, as it were, for themselves. But the reason of their life has at this moment evaded them. They are like sheep without a shepherd. And it is only when what we have, however big or small it may be, is handed into the hands of Jesus, and he, this is wonderful, what did he do? The Bible is explicit. He gave thanks. And I think it's Luke's gospel that says he looked up to 
heaven and gave thanks. And the whole situation was turned around. Psalm 147 says this, verses 10, he takes no pleasure in the strength of a horse or in a human might. No, the Lord's delight is in those who fear him, those who put their hope in his unfailing love. Second part is simply this. All that I've said, I believe, comes clearly from that story and there's so much more that we can say. But I sense in my spirit as I prayed and wrestled a little bit with the Lord over this sermon, I sensed that he was saying this, a huge problem in the church today is that too many Christians are doing too much. We live in a world which is frenetic. We are busy, busy, busy with our meetings and our programs and everything else. We rush through life. We rush through church. We don't have time to sit and feed upon God long enough for him to change the inside of us so that we are different when we rise up. And I say, Lord, God, forgive me, because that's me. I have so much to do. Somebody said about when I was in retirement. I'm in retirement. I love retirement. I'm more fulfilled in my life than I've ever been before. And I'm busy because there's a world out there. I've had the privilege of seeing some of that world when I travel. And there's a world out there that needs to know about Jesus. But it begins just outside the door. But it will not happen until God's people have waited upon him and received the instructions from him, and have waited in the upper room like in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, and received the power from on high, because only then is the power released. Now, am I mad? Am Am I misunderstanding Scripture? But was it Jesus who said, wait, wait, until you've received power from on high? And Jesus says in verse 35, and this is a phenomenal statement, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. This is all tied together. Because you see, if you really believe that, if I really believe that, as much as, and I can know, people have laughed with me this, some of you here I've had meals with in your homes or out in restaurants. I love food! Anybody here love food? Am I on my own? I love eating. And my wife has said, and the family laugh and say, one of the things we know about Dad, he'll never die of starvation. But my spirit could die if I don't feed on the bread of life. If I only take the crumbs, I've got time to eat. If it's only a hurried meal on the go. I miss the life that he wants to give me. And you will miss the life that he wants to give you unless you wait upon him and feed upon him and drink upon him because it's only in him that you get the life that you need. Lord, help me. I was in a church recently and I shared something, I've shared it here before, it's a burden on my heart. And one person came up to me afterwards and said, if there was no other reason why you were here this morning, I needed to hear this. 
I don't want to say it, but I'm going to say it because I, I shall be disobedient to the Lord. Men, rise up in your families. Take authority in your families. Be the spiritual atmosphere in your homes. It's your role. Oh, you're equal with your wife before God? Absolutely. But you're also the priest of the home. And the more I travel and talk to men, young and old, and I say to them, and I'm, I'm pretty direct, I've got, I don't know when I'm going to go and be with the Lord, so I thought there's no point in messing around any longer, I'll be direct. And I will say to men that I'm talking to, how often do you pray with your wife for your family? Oh, we don't do that. She's the one who does the prayers. Oh, I wouldn't know what to say. And I feel the sadness of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus is the bread of life. And you cannot have life in yourself, let alone spread that life with your family, unless you yourself have sat with him. Jesus equates himself to the bread, and he says, the bread that I fed the 5,000, this is in essence what is happening in verse 35, is okay for the physical body. You need bread for your soul. Secondly, he says this, if you eat the bread which is the spiritual bread, you will have the spiritual energy and life and passion that you need because that's what comes when you spend time with Jesus. Thirdly, he says this, I am God, saying that he is the bread of life, is making another claim to his deity. Why can I say this? Because you know as well as I do that this verse in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 35, is the first of the seven I am statements that Jesus made. I'm not going to repeat all the others. I haven't got time. Please somebody stop the clock. I always have this problem when I preach. The seven I am statements of Jesus are what we feed upon in order to have the life that he wants to give us. And what does Jesus say? Come. Those that come will never hunger again. And those who believe, in other words, you're not just nodding and saying, that's great what Jesus said, isn't it? But you believe it, and when you believe it, it changes your life, and you live differently as a result of it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And you know, I'm saying this, and I'm not a prophet, that's exactly what the world is looking for. Why can I say that? Because I've been to India, I've been to Thailand, I've sat and listened to Muslims, I've sat and listened to Hindus, I've sat and listened to Sikhs, I've sat and listened to Buddhists, I've sat and listened to Jains and all sorts of other religions. And what is the core of their religion is, I want to be in God's presence. I want to please him. And all those religions, put very simply, are working by all that they do, believing that they will please God and therefore get into heaven. And what does Jesus say? Come. Believe. And you will have eternal life. Oh, gosh. What an answer to the craziness of the chaotic world in which we live. Blessed are those, Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And I guess the question is clearly this, how much do you hunger and thirst? How much do I 
hunger and thirst for righteousness. Maybe just me, and I'm truly just saying as it is, I believe in saying things as they are. I was wrestling over this word today, and I was up at three this morning for an hour and a half saying, Lord, have I got it right? Is this what is for your people this morning? If it's not, Lord, let me rip it up and start all over again. And I believe Jesus said, yes, just tell them. Tell them they need to be feeding on me. Not as a casual meal, but like I am the essential, the essential thing that they might have life with a capital L. As I was pondering upon this, this thought came to me, and I, don't, I believe it was from the Lord. He said this, you know, people often talk and with a bit of a smile on their face. They, look, they say, ah, you remember that when Jesus went to Lazarus' house? And there was Martha rushing, rushing around, getting the meal ready. And there was Jesus, uh, you know, there, and there was Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Mary, Martha's getting all uptight. Oh, I've got to get a meal together. Tell this woman to come and help me. And Jesus says, and we all know it very well, he says to, uh, to, to them both, he said, Mary has chosen the better part. As I pondered upon that this morning, I saw actually that's true. She was with Jesus. But then there's another truth that we have to apply to that story, and it's in Psalm 37, I think it's verse 2. See, we are to trust God and do good. Okay? Mary needed to sit with Jesus, but then she also had to go and do good and serve him. Martha, she got it the other way around. She was doing the good before she sat with Jesus. So both of them, in one sense, were right, and both of them were wrong. Well, maybe you're a bit like that, too. You're busy, 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 but you're not sitting long enough to hear what he would have you do until you do it in his strength. Or maybe your tendency is, I'll sit with Jesus. I'll wait. I'll listen for his word. But then you do nothing to serve the purposes of the king. See, they both were right and they were both wrong because they both needed to feed on Jesus. He is the one who alone satisfies hunger. You may say to me, David, well, how can I do that? I can't tell you how to do it. I do believe, and I'm old-fashioned, that everybody who is a follower of Jesus needs some form of, I would call it, quiet time, where they sit with God and listen. Say little sometimes, but listen for his voice. That's feeding on the bread of life. And then you rise up from that moment and you start doing the things that God has laid on your heart to do. And in my experience, fail as I have so many times on it. When you do that, you know God blesses what you do. You see the result of it. And God is glorified. Always God glorified, never us. It's all his grace, it's all his mercy that does it. I've got six more pages here, but I'm going to close my book. <laughs> to be in his presence.
presence is what we're going to sing to close. Well, we could sing a glory, glory song to leave on, and that's great. You'll feel good about it. But you know, when I think about this, when I think about Jesus as the bread for the world, the bread for you, and the bread for me, this is a serious business. And I want to say to you as we sing this song quietly towards the close, and I'll pray then and close the service, is this. How willing are you to sit in his presence? How willing are you to tarry for his word, for his voice? We've seen the miracle. We know that if you feel you've only got a little thing that you can offer, what can I do? I can make a great cup of tea. Great. Give it to God, and he'll bring more people around your house. You'll be like a cafe because you've given it to him. That's the simplicity of it. And the simplicity of the faith is so that everybody can respond. It's not for the intellectual. It's not for the PhDs only. It's for everybody who can offer anything to him.